And uh, the person that I've asked to speak tonight is Bob P. Uh, some people know him as New York Bob. And uh, I first met Bob's probably about 15 years ago, somewhere around in there. We both worked at the Austin Resource Center for the Homeless, and we did so because the director was a member here, and he was hiring Bolden people to work with the homeless people. And, like, uh, Bob worked the night shift, and I worked the day shift. And uh, I got to know Bob, and I got to appreciate Bob's sense of humor. It's like mine. It's dark. And also the music that he liked. Uh, like, uh, Bob is a expert extraordinaire on like rockabilly music and hillbilly music and like uh, uh, generally weird music so like I've always enjoyed his sense of that and uh, so over the years it's like I always enjoy talking to him and I found out that Bob has not told his story here tonight so I asked him to be the first person in September to tell his story and with that I give you Bob. wore a Hawaiian shirt in honor of Jim. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Bob and I'm an alcoholic. Hey, Bob. My sobriety date is uh, December 25th of 1989. Uh, <clears throat> that was, uh, yeah, I did my last, uh, okay, so there's drugs in my story, right? So, uh, uh, I, I, don't like to dwell on the specifics too much, but, you know, I can't really honestly tell my story without probably getting into some detail with it. So if uh, I know this is an AA meeting, so uh, I also know it's bold in, mm -hmm. and I also know that in this day and age, for you to have wound up uh, an alcoholic enough to come to AA, you probably did a lot of dope along the way, too. So, you know, uh, but, uh, you know, I remember, like, you know, th this halfway house that I first went to after treatment in 1989, it was like this old school place. Uh, it was called the Rebos House. Nice. That's sober spelled backwards. Uh, and uh, and they, uh, when I was heading in there, my uh, therapist in rehab told me like, oh, and one more thing. He gave me this caveat. You know, he said like, you don't want to talk about your drug use uh, at this place. Just play it like you're, uh, you know, straight algae. Because these are old school like AA guys. You know, and uh, and it was true. And uh, but you know, I could get with that because. Uh, you know, I was used to lying and not, you know, telling half-truths and, you know, keeping shit under my hat or trying to anyway, so. But, uh, but yeah, so, but this is bold. And, but anyway, I just wanted to say that. Um, so, yeah, like uh, Christmas Eve of 1989, I did my last bag of dope. And it's like, uh, you know, in my mother's apartment in Pittsburgh. So uh, where I had gone to kind of uh, clean up. You know, my pattern was that I would, uh, those last few years that I was bottoming out was, uh, I would always head into the summers real strung out, and that's when I would have to, like, go home and kick on mom's couch or uh, in Pittsburgh or something, and then I would get, I'd rest up for a month, and then I would head back to the city, and, uh, and I would, like, kind of start it up again. I'd be like, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chip, you know, that's what they used to call it, like, doing dope without getting a habit. But the chipper... It's like Bigfoot, you know? It's like fucking Sasquatch. <laughs> you, ever, you, ever, you ever know one? Yeah. <laughs> but it's this mythical thing that you think you're going to be the one, you know? But uh, So uh, I would do that until I got strung out again, usually over the winter or the cold winter, and then I would, you know, have to do that. 
And so uh, when I first started doing that, I thought, I'm going to my mom's apartment in Pittsburgh. You know, like, uh, it's like, I'm going to be safe. You know, it's like Podunkville. Like, there's not going to be any dope. And, like, I'm going to be, you know, like, I'll be able to get clean and everything like that. Well, then uh, it turns out the lady in the apartment downstairs, like, you know, was like, I got high with her. <laughs> and she, so, <laughs> so like, yeah, Pittsburgh wasn't so safe after all and, uh, for me. So, uh, you know, I had been like, uh, that was the kind of the culmination of a month long relapse. Uh, and I just did my last one uh, that night in my mom's apartment, Christmas Eve, 1989. So I kind of like slid in there right at the end of the 80s. And um, anyway, uh, more about that relapse later. Right? Um, so they say when you speak like this, you know, you actually speak three times. You know, there's the one you do before, you know, there's the one you actually do, and then there's the one you do afterwards when you're kind of like revising and editing to make it sound better in your head, you know? So as I was doing the first one, and you know, uh, I, you know, my mind just kept going back to this uh, uh, childhood stuff and, and my dad and shit like that. And, uh, I don't want to like, I don't want to wallow in that stuff too much, but you know, there's some, uh, there, there's some stuff there worth noting, right? So <clears throat> one, alcoholism and drug addiction runs in the family. You know, it's particularly strong on my dad's side of the family. And most of them are gone now and their lives, you know, like his sister, her husband, one of my cousins, and then uh, they're all gone, you know, and their lives were probably shortened due to, uh, you know, uh, lifestyle choices, we could call them, right? Lifestyle choices, uh, drinking and drugging and so forth, you know. And so my, and my dad's a big drinker, and uh, he's still around. He's like 80 years old, and like, uh, he just, like, uh, you know, he's had uh, half of his, like, stomach and throat and everything removed from esophageal cancer that he got and he like you know has had spells of sudden spontaneous amnesia you know he's fallen flat on his head on the living room floor and everything all these things you know but like the, you know the old fucker just won't you know uh <laughs> it gets back up again you know and uh and like uh, and runs to trader joe's and buys some more uh two buck chuck uh, another case of wine you know or you know pours another vodka or whatever you know and god bless him but uh you know he's still around uh mom's side of the family i'm not as familiar with but anyway so i grew up around that and so things were always kind of uh volatile and unpredictable and you never knew what version of the old man you were going to get and uh and then you never by extension you never you know when we would go to these like family gatherings and stuff you never knew what you know they could be like the nicest people you know and spoil me rotten and then on the flip of a switch they could be mean fuckers you know and bullies and stuff too and like you never knew what you were going to get so that created an atmosphere of uncertainty and anxiety you know I lived in, and, um, and then, um, uh, and then in addition, oh, so, you know, and we had a comfortable life, you know, uh, we moved a lot, because my dad was kind of climbing up this corporate ladder, and he would get a different job, and we would, you know, so we would pack, okay, we're moving, 
to Pittsburgh. Go, okay, we're moving away from Houston because Dad got another job and, you know, he was into his career and everything like that. And so that was another thing. You know, you get settled in somewhere and the next thing you know, you got to move. And uh, that was pretty weird. And, uh, and then my folks uh, had this really bitter, ugly divorce that dragged out, like, up until they went, you know, they waited until I graduated high school to finally do it. So uh, something that they probably should have done like 10 years earlier. So anyway, it was kind of a classic case of like on the outside, you know, it looked like a sort of a suburban family doing, you know, okay with a couple cars and a decent house and all this shit. But inside, you know, it was like pretty twisted, right? I would hear a lot of really uh, horrible arguments Horrible drunken arguments and stuff, and uh, they were pretty absorbed in the in the demise of their marriage the last few years. Just as I was kind of, you know, I was like in high school, and so they, whatever I, I came and went, you know, and did whatever I wanted, and I don't think they even like were aware of it, you know. So uh, that uh, played in pretty big uh, when I started to get high and drink and stuff in high school, middle school. And another factor is uh, me, you know. Uh, just as a kid, ever since I can remember, I was always much given to uh, daydreaming, fantasy, and, uh, you know, could just kind of like live in my imagination and stuff. And, uh, and always had, also always had a lot of anxiety and stuff, just kind of free-floating anxiety. Like, uh, oh, and I could be kind of obsessive, too, you know. Like I remember as a kid, I uh, I would get I would fixate on certain things, and, you know, like become really obsessed with like stuff. And I, it was like uh, the early '70s, and I, you know, there was like uh, Rat Fink and Hot Rods and Motocross and and uh, shit like that. And I was a young kid, and I got like a. Uh, and my cousins always had this shit. They always, you know, uh, they always had dirt bikes and stuff and everything. So I wanted, like, I got, I got fixated on this Yamaha Mini Enduro 60cc, like the one with the red tank, like a 71, you know, I wanted one of those. And, and I, uh, I think I even, like, wrote to Yamaha or something, and I, like, I had them send me, like, you know, they sent me a stack of brochures and stuff like that. And I, I would, like, instead of cracking the books, you know, when I was supposed to be doing homework, I'd be, like, Oh man, look at that thing, you know, and I, I'd want that like dirt bike really bad, but you know, I don't know if like nobody ever told me that to do this or if it just never occurred to me, like, but you know, the, the idea of maybe, uh, you know, getting a paper route and saving my dimes or, you know, mowing lawns and, you know, and getting some cash together and actually acquiring the fucking thing and riding it, like, was beyond me. I never, like, I just would rather, like, live in my head with this thing and, you know, in, in, the, in that form. And, uh, you know, and so I, that was kind of a funny thing for me, too. I don't know if that, if, if you can identify with shit like that, you know. I never really, like, had the follow-through or stick-to-itiveness to, like, bring a dream or make it a reality or something it was easier to just kind of daydream about it so that's another kind of weird factor right so when all this stuff with all this stuff cooking and whirling around when it when it came time to uh to try weed or something you know 
mid-70s, you know, remember the, like, what they call it? A lid, right? You know? The, the three-finger bag of Mexican dirt weed, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, your friends score a lid and you go, oh, man, we had to pay 15. We were like, uh, this is being recorded, by the way. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, anybody, and then they put it on some podcast or something like that, so anybody could listen, right? Well, I guess this is an open meeting, right? Or, uh, you know, your, your wife, your husband, your, the district attorney. <laughs> can't, get, can't get too honest, right? But anyway, uh, <laughs> Yeah, so when it, you know, when it came time to have that experience, which everybody was doing, uh, you know, it did something for me, right? It did something for me. Um, a lot of people will, you'll hear uh, people talk in meetings. If you go to enough of them, like you'll hear somebody say something like, uh, oh, when I discovered my drug of choice or when I discovered beer or this or that, I was like, where you been all my life? It was the great equalizer or it made everything all right or it made everything good and everything. And it was kind of like that for me, but, my, but like from the first time I really got high and uh, intoxicated, I would say my, a lot of my, uh, it was kind of ambivalent. You know, there was a part of me that really enjoyed it, and you know, uh, but the come down was a bitch. You know, and I remember the first time I like, I got high on some of that Mexican dirt weed from one of those lids that we bought, you know, back in 1975 <coughs> or whatever. And I was like with my, you know, sixth or seventh grade friends. It was pretty young, eighth grade friends. You know, like a young kid, pretty much, and doing bong hits, and we, and it, like, I got really high. That was the first time I got high. Like the first hour when we were like jumping around and you know listening to somebody's Big Brother's records and air guitar and, and like freaking out and la and everything, it was really fun and hilarious. But then I remember shortly, like into it, like I got kind of gripped with fear, and uh, and I think I remember I spent like you know much of that night just kind of like laying on the couch and uh, kind of freaked out, you know, and so. Uh, and there was a part of me that kind of always wanted it to stop, you know, and like, to, I would rather not be high, or I would rather not be loaded. Like, I wish the world would stop spinning so fast and out of control. I just, I, I don't know about this shit, you know? And I think uh, that helped me a lot uh, later when I was like bottoming out. It was, you know, it was time to consider this sobriety thing or, you know, surrendering and all of that. So, <clears throat> that, all of that just really kind of accelerated, and like I say, I was free to come and go. I was kind of a latchkey kid uh, that, uh, you know, I uh, went to school and went through the motions and didn't really have uh, much direction, uh, except for uh, the drug culture and stuff. So by high school, instead of like some pamphlet about a Yamaha mini bike, I was, you know, 
reading, I was doing coke and reading High Times or something. And I was like <laughs> dreaming, my dream was to like, you know, like be some kind of like international drug runner or something like that. And like, you know, I was, I had this little racket going where I was, I was mowing suburban lawns for like 10, 20 bucks a pop. And then I would get a, I would get a quarter pound of, you know, I'd upgraded from Mexican dirt weed to Colombian weed and I would sell it in school and I would make more cash and I would, and I it was, you know, I was like, I was never a, such a sort of a, a little uh, capitalist go-getter ever since, you know, like uh, as I was when I was in high school, like dealing drugs. <laughs> like I wish I had, the, I wish I was motivated to make money like that now, you know, but uh, <laughs> I, 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 I lost it and I never got it back. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, so other than that, I didn't really have much direction for, for shit, you know what I mean? And like, and so I just kind of did that. And, uh, and by then I was like, I'd kind of tried everything, you know, or I was well on my way to having tried everything. And, uh, I was pretty hung up socially and awkward. I didn't really have any skills for living and, but you know, and I would, I was starting to get like these shit jobs and stuff, like even in high school. I remember I, uh, I got into some trouble owing some guys some money and I had to go take this job real quick to try to like get some more cash to pay these guys off as quick as I could. You know, 17 years old and I'm, I'm, I'm already in that shit. And, uh, and I got this job at this used car lot uh, outside of Pittsburgh where I went to high school. And like, it was kind of funny, you know, I was a lot boy and I had to like wash the cars and chamois them down and try to make them look good on the lot. But I guess they thought I was really slow and, and, uh, and I didn't wash the cars fast enough. And the, and the used car salesman outside of Pittsburgh in 1980, what do you think they were like? You know, like, uh, <laughs> it's like, you, you know, People try to make movies with characters that look like these guys, you know, and, 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 they're, and they're not, they don't come as, you know, it's not as good, right? Like double knit slacks, polyester shirts, you know, and chains and like mustache and shit, and they would break, they would bust my balls, you know, at work. These salesmen, they had nothing else to do. Nobody was coming in and buying their shitty lemons, you know, and stuff. So, like, you know, they bust the lot boys' balls, you know, and they, and they, would, and they would say, they would say like, uh, "Hey, Bobby," you know. Uh, that was another thing too. Like when we moved to Pittsburgh, we had we, we had been living in Mississippi, uh, in Jackson, Mississippi, where my my name had always been Robert because my dad's name is Bobby. I had a cousin named Bobby Jack, Bobby Jack Reed, and uh, in, in Oklahoma City, and uh, and so they called me Robert. I think just to differentiate, right? And so that had always been my name. But when we moved to Pittsburgh, it was a different culture, kind of. And there, I think once a kid hits puberty. They're like not supposed to run with more than one syllable, right? <laughs> so like for six months at school, I'd introduce myself as Robert, but they would be like, "All right, Bob, you know, nice to meet you, Bob. You know, you, know, you want to drink a pop? You know, what are you, jag off? You know, <laughs> and, and, and that." So, so these like car salesman guys are like, "Hey, Bobby, you know, uh, hey, Bobby, you know, it's like uh, you should meet my nephew, you know, uh, he's a jerk off just like you." <laughs> or, uh, or, uh, or, Hey, Bobby, you know, like, uh, if you was going any slower, you'd be moving backwards, you know? And, 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 uh, 
And, and so I'd, and I'd be like, and I'd get fired from the job, you know, eventually. They'd say, like, we don't need you anymore. Don't, you don't have to come back next week. And, you know, like, and I would go, and I would get another crappy job, and then the same thing would happen and everything. And, and uh, I just kind of, you know, directionless, you know, uh, kind of lost, you know, just sort of drifted into this life of kind of mediocrity, right? Kind of half-assing everything and getting by like that and getting high. And uh, my folks divorced and my dad just didn't even talk to me. And, you know, it's funny, my, I, my sobriety date is also my dad's birthday, you know? Wow. And it's also Christmas, right? So very Christ-like of me, don't you think? <laughs> uh, and anyway, uh, and that's like, you know, I mean, unless it's like some kind of unconscious Freudian shit, you know, like, and that was purely by accident, you know, but maybe it's not, you know, but, uh, you know, that I got sober on my dad's birthday. But my relationship with my dad has remained a uh, sort of perplexing riddle uh, you know, throughout all this time, you know, 30 years almost sober, and it's still like, you know, you're dealing with a guy that drinks, and you know, it's like you're never really gonna. Uh, anyway, I don't know why I'm going off on that tangent, but uh, dropped me off at school. You know, this life of mediocrity made it so that, you know, I wanted to go to a main campus college, but none of them would let me in because my grades were too half ass. And, uh, and once again, I didn't have the like, long-term practicality or whatever to think like, hey, you go do a couple years of whatever and then you finish up at the main campus, you know, and it'll be all right. I, no, I wanted to go to a main campus, so I wound up, the only one in the region that would accept me was West Virginia University. Yeah. And so, in Morgantown, so, you know, come like fall of 1981, my, my, my dad drove me down there Okay, you know, here's your shit. See you later. <laughs> and that was that. You know, that's, the, that's as much guidance as I got. You know, and uh, and he went off to his, you know, divorce and his life and his drinking and his job and, you know, uh, and it was a it was a it was a pretty lonely life. And what I realized was that like I wasn't I had I, you know it kind of hit me then that I have really poor uh, life skills. You know, and, like talking to people was hard and. Uh, yeah, I was really like shy and this whole thing of like, I don't know what, I wasn't ready to go to school. I didn't even know like how to even, you know, I was poorly equipped, let's put it that way. So I just kind of kept compensating by like, you know, making friends with like uh, drugs and, you know, meeting people like me, the guy high like me. And, and then here's where the drinking comes in, you know, West Virginia back in that time was a uh, 18 years old drinking state, uh, uh, drinking age in that state, and that wasn't for some 3-2 beer like you got in Ohio. That was like you could go in, like, an 18-year-old could go into a bar and order a scotch, you know, and, uh, and so I did, and, uh, and, uh, and so that took off, you know, uh, quarter beers and, and uh, all kinds, you know, and I made these friends that were just like, you know, a bunch of them are dead now, too. You know, they didn't live. Like, it was like, it got into really hardcore use uh, and drinking and it wasn't no joke you know and pretty soon we were doing like you know pretty hard shit and uh, I went started to go through these crazy 
I knew something was wrong, and also, and like I was extremely uncomfortable, and I knew something was terribly wrong, and uh, I was trying all kinds of stuff, which I get, again, some of that maybe helped me down the line, you know, like I, I was trying like. Well, like, all the partying and the drugs and the drinking would freak me out every once in a while, you know? Like, I don't know. We got in. I had this one friend that was, like, a connoisseur of the weirdest stuff he could get his hands on. And, like, he'd come back, and he was a roommate, and he would come back, like, look, you ever try, like, uh, MDA, you know? And, uh, okay, and then we go on a month of that. That was the stuff that kind of preceded ecstasy. It was called methyl dioxyamphetamine or whatever. It was speedy as hell. And really psychedelic and euphoric, and you know, I did that every day for a month until like I couldn't get out of the fetus position or something. You know what I mean? And like, and I and I was like, I was like, this has got to stop. I got to take a break. You know? And, and I would like maybe like maybe I'll read this book on Zen Buddhism or something. You, you know? And, uh, and, I, and maybe I'll try meditating or something like that. And I would and I would do that. And you know, it, it kind of. It kind of paid off. I mean, like, I mean, some of that stuff it helps me to this day. I think still. So, uh, you know, that was my pattern. Once again, that thing where, like, I wish the world would stop spinning so fast. I wish, like, I could get off this fucking train. You know, uh, it's freaking me out. I can't handle it. Would kind of kick in, and I would take these breaks. You know, or I would then try a geographic cure, and I started going like. You know, uh, maybe I need to go down to Mexico or something, and I would move a few sheets of acid or something like that, or some drugs, and I would go do that. Or I would, I and I started living. I lived in the West Coast. I lived in San Francisco, like in the mid, early mid '80s, and it was a whole different place. I had a flat. I had a room in a flat with people that cost 130 bucks, you know, and I, I think the median rent now is like five grand or something, you know, and. Uh, Mm. And, you know, the thing that would hit me, you know, I would, I would try to keep my shit together and I would try to kind of like lead a healthy life and lay off, but I would just kind of get periodically overcome with this, this like depression and loneliness, you know, and this thing, you know, like I'm just out here, you know, like I can't deal with my family. I don't, you know, I'm just an ill-equipped 20-year-old kid living in this big, weird city, you know, or what, what, I don't even know if I could articulate it that well. I would just get this really creepy feeling that would, like, settle in, and the only thing that would, would shake it off would be to, like, just get completely stoned and drugged high for days on end until I didn't feel it anymore, you know? And then I would try, I'd pick up after the, you know, fog cleared, and I would try again, and I would run this cycle. And then, um, but then things started to get kind of heavy, and uh, I met this girl who became like kind of like my uh, drug taken mentor, you know, and uh, and my girlfriend, and you know, it's like, uh, and you know, she like uh, she turned me on to the chiva, you know, uh, the old uh, yeah. So uh, and we start doing that, and um, and then next thing you knew, we were getting sick, and uh, you know. Uh, getting habits. She moved in with me in that $130 a month flat, and um, <clears throat> a few months later, we, all, we both got kicked out of that $130 a month flat. You know, they were like, you guys gotta go, and then we were living in a little 
what you call them, like a studio efficiency down in the loin, you know, and uh, down in the tenderloin. And, uh, and then she, like, you know, started, uh, you know, like, every couple of weeks she would go, like, uh, you know, go to dinner with this old guy, you know, and... Um, <laughs> and not come back for a few hours, you know, and uh, you know, and all my, uh, and she'd come back with some dope and a uh, and a little pile of cash, and and uh, so uh, um, all my shit, you know, I had little sidewalk sales and everything. The last few things that I liked, that I still, my possessions that I had, you know. When I would get on one of those healthy jags, like, you know, like before I met her, you know, I'd, I'd get my like sleeping bag and my little backpack and shit, and I would take the bus out to Marin County and I would go, you know, hiking and backpacking for a few days. And, you know, and it's like, it's, it's incredible. It's like the best place in the world, you know? Like, uh, well, like all that stuff was gone, you know, and I didn't do that. I sold all the shit. And, like I was just, pretty soon we were just kind of running back and forth in these couple of neighborhoods doing the do, you know, and, and, uh, and that kind of went on and, you know, I had to leave there eventually and like kind of went to New York City and did the same thing there. I don't know how we got there. Just kind of like burning down every friend or family or connection that would help us out, uh, you know, and make it, made it so that, you know, they never wanted us to call them again after they were done with us. And you know, begging and borrowing and stealing to get where we would, uh, where we needed to go. And uh, uh, she and I eventually separated, but not before I picked up Hep C. You know, uh, so probably like in 1987, 88, I picked up Hep C. I didn't know I had it at the time. They didn't even have a fucking test for it at that time. You know, they didn't even know about it. And so, uh, and then. Things just got crazier and crazier, you know. I did the same thing in New York City for a couple of years, you know, just kind of like anybody I could talk into let me sleep on their couch or a girlfriend might let me live with her for a while or, you know, and while I have this, like, secret life of lies and shitty jobs I would get fired from and, you know, uh, you know, bringing some, some other poor person to the point where they're watching you through the keyhole of the bathroom while you're in one and they confront you about it and you snow uh, what do they call that uh, what's that uh, you know where you tell somebody you didn't see what you saw gaslight um, where you gaslight them right a gaslight gaslight them into like where they uh, they would have doubts about what they actually saw <laughs> and uh, with their own two eyes like evil shit you know and uh, really sick stuff and uh, that's just what you did to get by man you know like and uh that's just part of the game <laughs> and uh, I became I became friends with this guy Lucho who was kind of funny guy uh, Luis Martinez he was from Bogota and he had I guess he had come from some wealthy family in Bogota like at one point you know drove around Bogota in his little Alfa Romeo and and uh, you know and and but like he was just like living in squalor in East Harlem and smoking crack and stuff like uh, like by the time I knew him and we were like <laughs> He always knew where in the neighborhood to get, and I had maybe 20 bucks or whatever from my job, and so 
you know, we worked this little thing out called Lucho. He'd be like, hey, you know, go to 112th and Lex, you know, and get this shit called Mongo. And, <laughs> and, I, and I would, you know, and, it, and, and Lucho was correct, you know. And, uh, and, uh, and so, and, and, we, and we would split it and shit. And Lucho had this kind of funny thing where, like, he still had some of his, like, old playboy airs about him, you know? Like, we would be sharing a pathetic quart of Midnight Dragon malt liquor, but he would pour it into a glass with that little twist, you know? <laughs> like, from a wine bottle or something. Or Lucho would, Lucho would come over to your place, and he'd be like, you mind if I look in the fridge for something to eat? And he'd be like, that's nothing in there, you know? Like, you'd think there was, like, some wilted lettuce or, like, a slice, a half a slice of American cheese in there or something like that. And then Lucho would come out with this plate that he put together with all that stuff. That would be amazing. You're like, how did, where did that come from? Can I have some? And he'd be like, I don't know, man. That's all I got, you know? And he was funny, you know? But Lucho's like, Lucho got the bug, you know? He got the bug for sure. It's like the 80s, late 80s in uh, New York City, man. Everybody was getting sick. I didn't fucking get it, you know? How did I not get it? I didn't fucking get it. You know, uh, and so uh, anyway, I'm more, one more story in like a mofo here, and I should get to uh, what happened. Uh, so I just kind of the circus continued, and I entered that pattern where like I would just, I couldn't keep it up anymore by summertime, like uh, starting like 1987, 1988, 1989. It was just worse and worse, and I'd kind of go splat, and I'd have to like, you know, go back to my family or somebody to like, you know, let me stay on their couch for a little while, and uh, and like, you know, the first time I did, I was able to kick on my own. But then, like, I had to start going into treatment and stuff like that. And it's just, it was the 80s treatment era. And I still had some, I still had some, thank God, you know, my dad still, I was like 26 years old. My dad still paid for some coverage on Blue Cross Blue Shield, which was really good at the time. And I was able to go to rehab. And they just did the thing that they do in rehab, which is, you know, they basically confront your denial. Uh, you know, you're in somewhere for, you know, you can fatten up and uh, on the three meals a day, and then they put you in the hot seat and confront your denial, you know, and all your lies and your bullshit and, like, and everything. And, uh, you know, I wrote this chemical history they have you write. And, uh, and so, like, but I thought I was writing, like, on the road or something. And the therapist guy was like, what the fuck is this? You know? like, you know, it's like, you're full of shit, you know? You're, you're, what about that time you stole a car from your dad, you know, or whatever? You know, I'm like, oh, oh, this guy's done his detective work. You know, uh, you know I, don't, I don't know if I care for this treatment modality. And, uh, and I was... Uh, I was kicking and fighting, and then there was this doctor that would come around, like an MD that would come around. I think they would like check your vitals and everything to make sure your liver wasn't blowing up and, and shit. Oh, and by the way, my liver was blowing up because uh, it had settled back down, but I had tried to do the same thing a year before, and they wouldn't take me in because I had some kind of really elevated liver enzyme count, and they couldn't figure out what I had. You know, They couldn't figure out what I had. Uh, hep A, Hep B, non A, non B. There was this vast category called non A, non B, and uh, that's all they had. They hadn't narrowed down the Hep C virus yet, and so I had that non A, non B. We don't know what's going on. Your liver has to settle down before we'll take you into rehab. 
And I, then I skipped, and I went back to New York, and I got high for another year. And so, uh, anyway, this doctor came around, and I was telling him, I was griping to him about, like, this therapist and this place, and, th you know, they're doing this and that. I don't want to suffer the consequences of getting high anymore, but uh, and I'm even, I'll even go so far as to, you know, consider going to this AANA thing, you know, but this place, I don't know. And uh, the doctor said, like, hey, it's not jail, you know, sign yourself out. You know, and that that kind of shut me up. I was like, oh, uh, I just kind of wanted to grouse to this guy for a little bit. And uh, <laughs> and he said this. Uh, he said, uh, but you should know that you uh, are incapable of making a good decision for yourself. Hmm. And I don't know something about it at that time. You know, like in the big book, they talk about like you know when twelve stepping the guy. You know, like this, your prospect. You gotta catch them at a time when they're when they're open. You know what I mean? And they're, like they're open when they're when they've had the shit kicked out of them and they're hurting. And that, that's when you're open, right? Like, uh, and so maybe that's what it was. But I heard this guy. Like my old man had told me that my whole life growing up. He's like, you have shitty judgment, you know. Uh, you know uh, but I, I at least consciously, maybe probably not unconsciously, but consciously, I had learned to like kind of you know, blow that off. But when this doctor said it that day, I kind of, I was like, damn, it has really come to that, you know? And that's not what I meant to become, you know? Uh, somebody like that. And uh, I had this kind of first moment of clarity. And, uh, and, uh, and I felt so trapped. I felt so fucking trapped, you know? And, like, I just wanted to get away from my family and sever ties with them and drug and drink my way away from them. So I thought. And then they were finally saying, like, if you, want, if you sign yourself out of here, you know, that's it. You know, you consider yourself disowned and stuff. And uh, we're not talking to you anymore. And, uh, and I was like, oh, you know, mommy, you know. And uh, <laughs> on second thought, you know. And, uh, <laughs> and which is pointless because mommy is an asshole. You know, they, she can't help me, you know, sorry. Uh, that's a whole nother ball of wax. But uh, so uh, um, <clears throat> I know you're not supposed to talk to me about your mother that way, but, you know. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> I, uh, I heard this doctor and something happened and I knuckled down and I like started to take the rehab seriously, right? And they gave me, I worked my first and second step, you know, they gave me these uh, what, do they, what do they call that? Uh, what's that place in Minnesota? Uh, Hazelden. Hazelden. They gave me these fucking Hazelden pamphlets on the first step and the second step. And grandiosity, of course. And, uh, and I wrote, read some shit, and I wrote some shit, and I presented some shit to a group, and I wrote, and I wrote a group. And, uh, and uh, everybody said, like, nice job, nice job, and everything. And I, I can't remember any of it. <laughs> and then I finished... And they suggested going into this halfway house. So uh, this was all in Pittsburgh. And uh, I'd come back from New York to Pittsburgh. And, and so I was going in through treatment there. And so uh, the place I settled on, I want, you know, they wanted me to go up to this place in, in this town called Butler, Pennsylvania. I was just like, no, I'm not going up to fucking Butler, Pennsylvania. And uh, <laughs> uh, I'll take this Rebos house place that was down in this belly up, ruined old steel, steel town, like just on the outskirts of Pittsburgh. And like, they didn't have nothing going on there. It was like where the last like LTV 
uh, coke plant was operating, you know. Not cocaine, you guys, but coke. Coke that they used to make steel, you know. They combined with the iron ore. And it, and it fills the air with benzene. That's a byproduct. So, you know, you see this carcinogenic pollutant in the air, and it stinks pretty bad. And anyway, so I went to the Rebos house. Because <laughs> it was in the city, you know, and sort of, you know, this hillbilly city, and uh, where there was nothing but, like, crack and, and the Coke plant and the Rebos house, and it was otherwise a really depressed area. And, uh, uh, and, I, and I liked it pretty good. And, uh, and I, the entry level, entry level position there was uh, in a windowless room called the cave, which uh, I shared with half a dozen other old drunks. I had a bunk in there, and uh, you could kind of come and go as you please. You could go get a little jobby job, and you could. Uh, uh, even Joe, the guy, the manager of the place, even if you gave him a heads up, he'd even let you stay out overnight, you know. And uh, so it was like flexible that way. But I had to like, I had to not talk about my drug use. I had to just play it like I was an alky, you know, a straight alky. And uh, and uh, I did that. And I started going to meetings. And I ex- had like uh, panic attacks. And I had a few panic attacks, you know, like where like you're at the top of the stairs and you're convinced that by the time you get to the bottom of the stairs, you're going to die. And you really believe it, you know. And, uh, and I would run to a meeting, you know, and like it would make me feel better. And I would start to kind of catch on like, hey, this shit might work, you know, like it makes me feel better. And I, I like that, like an old and like I would there was this little beginners group at the Forbes and Murray. It was a Saturday night N.A. meeting and Forbes and Murray, we called it. Freaks and morons. <laughs> and it was one of those meetings where you go in and it starts and then it splits off into three smaller meetings. There's the main one, and then you there was this little beginner group. And I would go back to the beginner group, and there were, you know, maybe ten people back there at most, and it was a round robin. So you didn't even have to be assertive enough to raise your hand and share. Your your turn was inevitable. And it was gonna come around and you could say, like, uh yeah. Try not to get high. <laughs> it's hard, you know. I'll, I'll, I'll pass, you know. And, and, it, and it would make you feel, it made me feel better, you know. And I would walk out of the meeting feeling better than when I walked in, and that reminded me of something, you know. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I thought, well, I guess this is like my new fix, you know. Uh, this stuff, and, I'm, and, I, and I, I came and I wanted some more of it. And so I kind of look at that as my real working of the second step, you know what I mean? Like, uh, uh, like this stuff works. It, it makes me feel better. And I get another day clean by following this little Mickey Mouse suggestion. You know, their suggestions kind of work, you know? Go to a beginner's meeting and say, I'm Bob, I'm... Uh, it's hard. Yeah. <laughs> I pass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and just do that. There was, there was this guy that used to go to the 12th Street Workshop in New York City, uh, old Junkie Larry, that would say, <laughs> Junkie Larry would say, like, I started shooting dope during the Eisenhower administration. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and, and, and 
<laughs> and whenever you would get to the meeting and Larry was there, there would always be some woman that was like sitting next to him, like hugging him and kissing on him, and, the, and they loved Larry, you know? And be like, what time? We were like, what is it, Larry? And he'd be like, I don't know, you know? I, don't, I guess I got it, you know? And, and, uh, I heard him tell like a beginner guy, he, like who was kind of like, I don't know about this shit, I don't know about this God shit, I don't know about this, I don't know about that, I don't know about this fucking shit, this stupid book, you know, it's it's sexist, it's archaic, it's you know whatever the guy was, his quibble, valid quibble was, you know, uh, Larry said like, you know, he broke it down for the guy. He said, look, all you gotta do is sit in a chair. You know, just sit in a chair for an hour, you know? You can do that, right? And, uh, and uh, it was true. Like, if you just did that much, the shit started making you feel better. I thought, you know, that was my experience. And so I came to believe that this power greater than myself, you know, could restore me to sanity. I had a bit more trouble with the first step in my powerlessness. Even though I could admit my unmanageability at that point, I decided, you know, like... Uh, at one point to uh, <clears throat> go take another crack at it. I had about four months, and I'll try to wrap up with this. I had about four months, and um, I was living at the Rebo's house. Or I guess I had moved out. I got this job, and I worked at night. It was a tele-fundraising job mm -hmm. where all the other freaks and druggies in town worked. <laughs> and like there was this guy that worked a couple cubicles down from me that got high, I like how, how I like to get high. And I dealt with that for a couple of weeks. And then one day I just woke up and I just said, well, you know, I'm gonna try another one. And I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna um, get dude man to buy me one and we did it and, uh, and I was out for a month. I was just gonna do one and I was gonna come back to the meetings, get a white key tag or a desire chip or whatever, you know, and start over. That was my plan. Well, I was out there for like a month. And there's nothing worse than like, like they say, you know, you have a, you have a uh, head full of AA and a belly full of booze, you know. It'll fuck up your drinking and getting high, so watch out, you know. Uh, it just won't work the same for you. And that happened to me, and uh, I uh, wanted nothing more than to just come back to the meetings and be clean, and once again have my world stop spinning so fast, you know, and out of control. But I couldn't get back in, you know. I couldn't get back in. I'd get a couple days, and I'd run into the guy at work, and he would say, oh, man, you should have been with me yesterday. You know, it was really good yesterday, you know. And that would make me want to try again tonight. And I would just, you know, like they say in the other program, you know, uh, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. And, uh, you know, uh, so... Fortunately, one time, uh, this guy, he just kept beating me, you know? He started beating me, like I'd just get these, he'd come back, it'd take him two hours to get back, and it'd be a dummy, you know? Like, and I finally, like, the last one I bought from him, I tried to cook it up in the spoon, and it, like, turned into a fucking pancake, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, there was so much bisquick in it or something, it just turned into a pancake. And, like, and, uh, and, and, and in a fit of like complete frustration and rage, I just I took all, all my stuff and I threw it in the garbage can, and uh, and that's like the last time, you know, like that was the last time, and uh, <clears throat> I didn't do that shit, 
and I've run out of time, or I would tell you about how I got cured of hep C, which was miraculous as well. Uh, but uh, I'm out of time, uh, and you can't go over man. That's the, that's the, that's the law. So, uh, thanks for listening, everybody.